0: It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a magic marker. A, a felt pen. It's a mistake. It's a drop. It's a fucking comedy. It's quiet. Maybe
1: too quiet. It's all happening.
0: It's a good day to die.
1: It's a good day to talk about movies. Welcome back. It is a good day to talk about dreams of paper and ink. I am your host, Duncan. Joining me, as always, is Gardner.
2: Really tough to make a no dialogue joke on an audio only platform. Hello
1: to you as well. So that's a little tease. The movie we're talking about today is Dreams of Paper and Ink, which is an Australian film by Glenn Triggs, who listeners will remember from a previous episode, episode number four, where we interviewed him and talked about his entire body of work. So today we're talking about his new film, Dreams of Paper and Ink, which will be in cinemas in Australia in May of 2022. So look out for that. American listeners, we will keep you updated on when it'll be available for you. But in the meantime, you can absolutely follow all of Glenn's work on YouTube and on Facebook. You can follow him. Dark Epic Films is the name of his YouTube page, as well as his Facebook page. And there's also a Dreams of Paper and Ink exclusive Facebook page, which you can follow for exclusive Dreams of Paper and Ink news. On top of that, there's also an Instagram page for Dreams of Paper and Ink. All of those links will be in the description of this podcast for you to click on and follow. So we're gonna be joined very shortly by Glenn. Not much to talk about before that. We went really in depth on Dreams of Paper and Ink and on his creative process. It was another amazing interview. I love having Glenn on. He's one of my favorite filmmakers right now. He always puts out something that I'm really interested in and I cannot recommend his work enough. His past work includes Cinemaphobia, 41, Apocalyptic, and Comet Kids, as well as Lunar, The Follow, and others that are available all on YouTube, as well as Tubi. Gardner, you want to talk about how great this interview was before we get into it?
2: Glenn being one of our first guests and then coming back now is just so exciting. I love that first episode we did with him. I think obviously we've improved a lot since then, and, and you're just really going to hear it in this episode, Duncan and I are really passionate about this film. We loved it. We love Glenn's body of work. And yeah, I think this is, this is one of the best interviews we've ever done. I'm really excited for you guys to hear it.
1: So without further ado, let's get to it right now. Here it is our interview with Glenn Triggs. We are joined now by a very special guest. Our first recurring guest who listeners will remember from episode four of this podcast. Is joining us now. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce Glenn Triggs back to the podcast. Glenn, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me back. It's
1: good to see you guys. Of course, anytime. We're so happy to have you back. And uh, we do want to introduce you again to any listeners who may not have listened to the first episode. If you did not listen to number four, then please go back uh, and check it out because we went over Glenn's entire filmography. But you may know him from Cinemaphobia. 41, Apocalypse Cult or Apocalyptic, depending on where you're from, it may be titled something different, Comic Kids, and now the new about to be released feature film, Dreams of Paper and Ink, which we're very excited to talk about. Glenn, how'd I do on that background?
0: Right, that's no, good. I always do think it's weird to hear that Apocalyptic does have two different names around the world. That's, that was a really weird thing when that happened because I always loved the name Apocalyptic and a lot of people got it confused with Mel Gibson's Apocalypto, And there was a point, a very short amount of time in Australia here where Apocalyptic sat right next to Apocalypto on the shelves at the DVD stores. And that was like a huge thrill for me. And right next to Apollo 13 as well, which was just crazy, like two of my favorite films. So that was nuts to sort of be on the same shelf for a little small amount of time with those other films. And then, yeah, then they changed the name to Apocalypse Cult, which is a far more descriptive title for the film, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah it's, always, yeah, it's always weird to hear people sort of reference a different name for it, which is... It's cool. It's cool, though. It's good.
1: Yeah, so, okay, we'll call it a- Apocalyptic on GDT here because that's the original title. We've established that. Yeah, That. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's good. And you can find that movie, as well as Comic Kids, in DVD form on Amazon Prime. And you could also find plenty of the movies streaming. I would look on Amazon Prime. That's where I watched 41 the first time. I believe it's still up on Amazon Prime. As well as Tubi. You can find... At least 41 Apocalypse Cult. I just did it. Apocalyptic that's right. <laughs> Comic Kids. I'm pretty sure you can watch them all on Tubi, which is a great app. So, honestly, guys, if you haven't seen Glenn's work, please check it out because I can't vouch for
0: it enough. No, thank you. It's it's good to know, it's good to know that um our movies are sort of uh, reaching all over the world. That's oh, that's great. Like it's um I, I still get messages from people all the time. 41's been our biggest film, I guess, and I get messages every day about 41 people. For some reason, it just got into people's heads and minds and hearts, I guess, which was um, unexpected, totally unexpected for that film. So, yeah, it's great.
1: And still is getting a lot of credit to this day, which it's very deserving of. But I know I see that it's being posted time and time again, in top sci-fi lists, top movie lists, top time travel lists, all of them, people really do resonate with that film, which is not to say that they don't resonate with all of your films, but I do understand that there's been a very big outpouring of love for 41 and I can totally get it. It does happen to be one of my favorite movies ever, so it's hard to top that for me, but I will say that I have very good things to say about Dreams of Paper and Ink, and I think that it might end up topping 41 for how much reception you get from it from people because i think that audiences are really going to resonate with it i really do yeah
0: yeah the people i've showed it to so far have definitely you know felt something from it um and more males than i think females potentially i think it's, it's sort of it's, you know it's, it's from a guy's point of view i guess um but yeah people have definitely paid attention to it but it, it's we we've had it's been such a slow process to get this movie out Cause it's been finished for almost two years now and it's just, we've struggled with COVID, you know, no cinemas. We're going to screen anything for a long time. Um, all the um, like film markets at the moment have been, you know, dead quiet, like no one's at these film markets. So we're, I think we've just done the American film market in Berlin and nothing really happened there. Cause they were all online. And then um, I think we're going to the Cannes film market with the film soon. So hopefully, hopefully some distributors pick it up. But um, it will get out there eventually. We're going to have it in cinemas um, in May in Australia, which is really great. Um, but it's been hard. Like, it's a really niche sort of film that a lot of, and, you know, a bigger audience isn't necessarily going to be drawn to easily. But once they're there, I think they'll enjoy the, the film itself. But it's, um, yeah, it's definitely, it's a, an experimental type of movie, I guess. So, yeah.
1: And since we are now talking about it, before we go any further, let's do a quick spoiler warning for Dreams of Paper and Ink. We are going to be spoiling Dreams of Paper and Ink today on this podcast. We're talking everything that happens in the movie. So if you haven't seen it, turn this off now. Go watch it and get back to us. And for everyone else, that was your spoiler warning. So Dreams of Paper and Ink is the new film that we're talking about, which Glenn, you said, is going to be out in Australian cinemas in May 2022. It's notable for being completely void of dialogue. And if you've seen it, you know that it really does have no dialogue sticks to that so it's amazing i love it and we're really excited glenn to talk to you about it let's get into dreams and paper and ink if you're okay with that
0: yeah so um i had a few different script ideas a while ago and i wasn't really sure what i wanted to make next and i spent about i just had three kids as well i think i might have mentioned this in the last podcast just had three kids and i was looking for a film something not too big because the comet kids movie was giant and that took up about three years and sort of Cost me a little bit of sanity because it was so difficult to make. Because I sort of wore many hats trying to make that film, and then Dreams of Paper and Ink. The title was initially Echoes, and I I started. I think I started with just a poster. I thought I'm going to make this movie that's about a relationship I had when I was about 20 or something, and I wanted to sort of follow very minute details in this relationship of how I was affected by it and what happened and all the things that went along with it, long term and short term, and I sort of had issues with dialogue. So every time I would start to write something, I would write words and I was like, that doesn't feel right. And I'll try to you know, make the characters say things. I'm like it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. And then I was walking one day. I, was, I always get good ideas when I'm walking. So I was out for a walk. And then all of a sudden it just hit me. I'm like, what if they just say nothing? And it was this beautiful sort of epiphany of, oh, this, this is the film I want to make. Like That's the film that's going to be completely different to anything else that's kind of out there. To some degree and so I just um, started that I started writing a script with no dialogue and it was about 30 something pages it was quite short I initially thought the movie might have been about two hours ended up being about an hour 20 and it just happened really organically it just happened quite naturally the way that it all worked and it worked quite easily and then I sort of decided to try to find some actors I was going to make this film myself for a very small super small budget I just I like those sort of um, projects we have full control over all that sort of stuff. So um, I saw this girl Tamara on this. I think it was with a um, website called um, Showcast, not Showcast. It's acting, Star Now, sorry, Star Now. It's like sort of like, you know, a a cheapish sort of uh, casting website that we have and there's a lot of really good talent on there if you sort of delve deep enough. And I saw this girl called Tamara and she kind of looked very similar to this girl that I had this relationship with when I was younger And she sort of had everything about this character, like everything down to everything. She sort of embodied, I guess, a lot of different relationships I went through when I was younger. And I thought I need to get her for this film. And if I don't get her, I just won't make the film. It was as simple as that. I was like, I'm just not going to even, because no one else was like her. And so I sort of stalked her for a little bit, I guess, kind of just, you know, watched all of her videos and sort of, you know, saw the stuff that she was doing. I think I requested a friendship on, on Facebook or Instagram or something like that or followed her. And then I eventually just, I think I called her one day and I just, no, sorry, I emailed her and I said, um, I'm doing this film. It's got no dialogue. It's going to take us about two weeks to shoot. Um, I think you're perfect for it. I think you're going to be, you know, this is the film you're born to play sort of thing. And then I called her and I sort of explained everything to her. And I was like, you know, I've been sort of following you for a while. I know all the all these songs you've put up and I've been, and she would she had actually put up, herself singing these songs on instagram or something and then she took them down but I, they stuck in my head i'm like these these are really good songs and i said like can, you know can we use some of these songs in the movie and she was like yeah that's fine so some of the songs that she sings in the film um, as much as there's no dialogue there is some songs and, and lyrics in the movie so um yeah so we found yeah tamara and then and i just explained to her basically i just said you know I, I don't think i told her i wasn't going to make the movie without it but i just sort of you know offered her all the different aspects about the film and she was she jumped straight into it and she's like, yeah, I'm happy to do this. And um, that's sort of how it all happened. And then it just, we sort of went away and shot this movie for, I think it was the whole film was shooting like 12 days or 14 days or something like that. It was quite short. Um, and, they were, and they were short days as well. They weren't long days either. And shot very quickly on a Sony a7 III camera by myself and very small crew. I think we had two crew members with us or something. We had no catering people. We all sort of, you know, cooked food ourselves at this little beachside house for a couple of days and got the whole movie done. And then COVID happened and the whole film got delayed. Like we sort of, I think we'd shot about 80% of the movie and the last 20%, we had to wait about six or seven months to finish. And that was awful because um, people had to, you know, move back to Sydney and people had to, you know, grow older and do things with their life. And we had to wait. Yeah, about six months. And there, there was about a month where I thought we weren't going to get the film finished. I was like, I'm just going to have to live with the fact that we've got most of it done and it's it'll be something, but it won't be what I had planned for or hoped for. And then we just got lucky. We had a few little windows when you know lockdowns got sort of shut down, I guess, and everyone was free for you know a couple of weeks at a time. And then we just rushed out and just shot the rest of the movie and everyone everyone was keen on it too. Like no one had really sort of fallen off the tracks with it. Everyone was, they wanted to get the film finished, which was great. And um, it turned out great. It's, 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 you know, it's the latest film I've made. So of course it's probably my favorite film at the moment, but um, I watch it a lot and I don't really get too sick of it. Something like the comic kids. Unfortunately I've sort of become sick of that. Cause I watched it so many times. Like that was beyond a joke. How many times I watched that movie, but um, this one, it was quite a quick process. There weren't, you know, no, no real special effects. There's a couple of very small special effects in the film. Um, compared to some of that comic kids which had a lot more effects in it, a lot more sort of um, sound mixing involved. And it was a relief to not have dialogue, didn't have to mix dialogue or you know, worry about subtitles and stuff for this film. That was kind of me just being lazy as well, just not having to do all those sort of things. So yeah, that's sort of the, the process of how it got made, I guess, really.
2: I'm actually surprised to hear you talk about um, the, the sound in this film being less of an issue because when I was watching it, I was thinking, wow, there, there must have been so much planning and and effort that went into the sound in this film because of the fact that there's no dialogue, right? You, everything else has to be at a certain level because it's such an important aspect of this film. Like you were saying, before we started recording, like you can watch something and you know, the, the camera work might not be the best or whatever, but as long as the audio is solid, then it gets a pass. And I thought the audio was tremendously mixed in this, And I wanted to ask you what that process was like, how much of the audio was, was recorded on location, how much was like ADR and mixed afterwards. And I also wanted to ask you about the soundtrack because the soundtrack is like pitch perfect. And so what was the process like of, of picking those songs and, and even the songs that are performed in the movie, you mentioned some of them were maybe songs that, uh, the lead actress had, had written or performed in the past. And I know that you play the guitar and you write songs as well. So I want to know if you had written any of those.
0: Yeah. So, um, so with the sound for the film, we we did record a lot of sound on location um, and a lot of, and probably more sound was probably added at the end. Um, and that's things like, you know, at, mostly atmosphere, things like, you know, crickets, nighttime, suburban noises, um, waves at the beach. Um, I had to actually, there's a bit sort of near in the film where there's like people are digging through the sand. There's two scenes where people are digging through the sand and the stuff we had recorded on location was just awful. It was just too windy. You couldn't hear anything. So I ended up getting, I've got my kid's sand pit here um, and we use that actually in the film as well. You probably won't even notice it, but there's close-ups on the sand at the in the end scene when he's digging through the sand and that's just in my kid's sand pit and you'd never know that it was, you know, you think it's on a beach, but if you look closely, you'll see little tiny leaves and there's no leaves on the beach, but there's leaves in the sand pit. So I ended up just getting heaps of sand and putting it, and I just did it all myself. And it took, I didn't really want to do it because I, I'm a lazy sort of person, I guess. <laughs> and I'd rather have something pre-recorded that's professionally done already that I can use. Um, but I ended up just, yeah, getting the wheelbarrow, putting sand into it, bring it into the studio, this room where I am right now, and use this microphone and just did my own sort of, you know, uh, ADR sort of stuff, foley sort of, you know, sound effects and just tried to sync up the sounds of people you know, digging through sand really close. And it mostly worked. Um, I had to do it twice because I think I lost the file at one point, which was just a really weird thing to happen. But, um, yeah, the sounds in the film, a lot of atmospheres were added. Um, I personally don't think the sound in this movie is mixed that great. I I think there's – I didn't use much compression really on it at all. So there's things where it's a very raw sort of sound, I guess. It's a very sort of um, natural, very naturalistic sort of um, soundscape. There's no, like, crazy special effect noises or, you know, like, None of that sort of stuff that you find in all movies you watch these days. Um, it was just all just natural sounds, birds chirping. Um, there's a bit where um, uh, he sees like he's um, keen as kids. There's a scene in the movie where he sees these um, grandkids rock up to the house and they're my kids, but we had to add sounds of them laughing. And so I, one afternoon I just got my wife and I said, you need, you need to make the boys laugh just for like a minute. So she's just tickling them and I'm just recording it with my microphone. And then I just added all these like you know reverb, slow motion sort of noises to sort of make it a bit more echoey and stuff in this scene. But um, yeah, mostly naturalistic. The, The songs in the film, I had about maybe 20 songs that I was in love with when I was writing the script and when I was thinking about the film. And I approached a lot of the artists that I liked and I didn't hear back from most of them but there was a few that I did. And one of my favorite artists of all time, an Australian singer called Alex Lloyd, you've probably never heard of him in the States necessarily, he had a, a huge song in Australia years ago called amazing. And I contacted him and he was happy for us to have a film, a song in the film for our festival run, which was really cool. And then I just found these artists that sounded great. And um, we just, I just listened to songs just over and over again. And there was another song that I was in love with is that there's a breakup scene sort of in the film in the, in the third act. And we had a, a song by an artist um, and I love this song. I will talk about his name, even though his song's not in the film, it didn't work out in the end, but um, his name's Blanco White. And he's got this song called Outsider. And I was just obsessed with this song for months when I made this film. And we had his song in the film as a temp track, but the whole thing with the, the Sony publishing just, just didn't work out with the film, but um, that was a really good song. And then Georgie Curry, the, her songs at the end, her, she's got the final song on the in the beach scene and um I contacted a friend of mine, Brad Ellis, um, and, he, he's got, and he's got one of his songs in the film as well. He's had, his song was on the, the first trailer and he recommended Georgie and her song was just perfect. As soon as we heard it, we're like, this is the song for the, for the end of the film. And um, so it was a long process. And then I had to i listened to thousands along the way trying to find it. But I knew I wanted to have music in the film. I definitely wanted to have people singing. I just thought it, it was just that so for some reason it just felt right when we initially wrote the script, no one was singing in the film. And then I knew that Tamara could sing. I'm like, do you think what you should sing in the film? She goes, yeah, I think that's right. I think that feels right. And so we had about, f- there's a scene where she sings this song and she is joined by older Wade, who plays guitar. Um, but earlier on in the film, he's younger and he doesn't know how to play guitar. And he goes off on his life and he's, you know, obviously him and Keena don't work out. Spoiler alert again. And he gets taught guitar by his current wife. And then in this scene, there's this sort of scene where he gets to play guitar with her singing. And we had about five songs. I think um, Tamara had about three songs. I had two songs and we just sort of played around with them for weeks. And I, I thought a song that I'd written years ago called Row Boat or Row Your Boat or something. And I thought that's a really cool, like I love that song. And I'd recorded it myself quite badly, many times. I could never get the song to really sound great. Is it on Spotify? I think it might even be on Spotify somewhere. Anyway, and... um. So I said to Tamari, I think this is the song we're going to use. So um, uh, Neil had to learn the song and he only learned half the song. So on the day we shot it, we did about 10 takes to get, because I wanted it to be one full continuous take of that song with no cutaways, just to have them play in this, you know, somewhat perfect um, scenario. And it just worked out great. Like the sound worked out great. Neil figured like on his 10th take or ninth take, he got it perfect. You know, there's butterflies in the background and stuff flying around in that scene. And it just was just yeah just worked out really well so i do love that scene because that idea of them having a song together at different ages came quite late in the process that was just me driving to rehearsals going oh maybe he should play guitar and then someone else had an idea oh maybe he learns guitar he doesn't know how to play guitar to begin with and then he, all all that sort of stuff so and that's very true of what happened to me like i was a really bad guitarist when i initially was dating this girl that the movie is sort of about i guess essentially and i got better at guitar so that was it just made sense that that was you know a lot of me is in this film a lot of me is in this film
1: i have to echo what gardner said about the sound i watching it i loved it and again it's something that is important when you have no dialogue because you're focused on what is being played and that goes for both the diegetic sounds and the music as well but going off what you just said about how there's aspects of your life in it in our last interview, you said that there's around like 10 moments from the film that come straight from your actual life. And you just mentioned the learning to play guitar one. Is there any like a big moment or anyone that you want to bring up that you can say like, Oh, like this was directly from my life. Like this happened to me. Or if you'd kind of want to leave that up to the mystery of the watch.
0: No, no. So there was, there's this moment in the film where, um, is in the water and she's swimming and she wants Wade to swim with her. And I, th- I think a lot of guys can relate to this, that, you know, you are sort of dating this particular person or whoever it might be and they're swimming and they want you to swim with them. You're just like, ah, oh, I don't feel like swimming. I don't feel like it. Then you sort of look back and you go, probably should have swam with that person that day. And it was weird because I've actually that exact moment that's in the film. I've actually got that on camera, like a real moment when that happened, I was up in Queensland and we stayed at this like a, uh, I don't know, some sort of um, you know, holiday rental place. And she was in the water. I'm filming her with my camera and she runs up. She's like, do you want to have a swim? And I'm like, no, nah, I don't feel like going in the water. I was a bit sunburned at the time with my you know, ready hair and stuff. So it didn't um, work out. But it was, it was very weird to be able to, because I, I sort of forgot I'd filmed that moment. And I was showing, I think, some scenes to, like some footage from my real life to the actors one day. And it was weird to look back on these moments because I remembered them quite differently. And to look back at the exact moment and see the moment and be like, oh, okay, I was kind of a bit of an idiot. I was kind of a bit of a jerk, <laughs> you know, with this person. And I, that didn't hit me till like that moment when I was watching it with the actors. I was like, okay, wow, well, this is this movie is perfect then in that case because it's exactly about, you know, um, not getting things right the first time and learning from that and having to learn that that can be quite a hard lesson to learn sometimes too because when you're, you know, the first time you have or you think you go through the, you know, the magic of first love and all that sort of stuff. And then to sort of, to lose that, it's quite, I think a lot of people go through that at a young age and it's quite a monumental thing that you sometimes carry with you for a long time. So that's sort of what this movie was about, sort of being quite affected by a first love or a first relationship. And what you learn from that and how to treat people better as you continue on with your life and those big lessons that I think a lot of people maybe hide inside themselves. You don't really talk about it too much with people, but I think everyone has that little you know, magical, euphoric place that they get to visit um, in their memories of um, their earlier relationships, I guess.
2: Speaking of of memories, you've mentioned that movies like H.G. Wells' Time Machine, which, shout out to the poster right back there on the wall, yeah, <laughs> and uh, Field of Dreams were an influence on 41. What were some of the films that inspired you when you were making Dreams of Paper and Ink?
0: this is the weird thing. There's actually no films that help inspire this film. This is purely from my life because with every other movie, there's always been a film I can reference. I'm like, okay, I'm sort of, I'm sort of taken from this. Like 41 was very much filled of dreams and, you know, comic kids was very much sort of like Goonies or something like that. And I could sort of go back and reference, you know, what worked, what didn't work and how, how things were structured. But with this, I was totally trying to be as original as possible and just drawing from my life and not really copying or being inspired by anything which was good i think like it was a, it was a weird place to be and it's um because um, they, they, it always felt like an experimental sort of film it never felt like i was using something that had already been you know a success in the past it was like this is just totally new territory for me anyway um to try to make a film that's original <laughs> like, you know, like actually like genuinely original to some degree whether or not other people see you know similarities between other films that they've seen already or things like that that's highly possible I imagine because everyone's inspired I'm sure deep down I'm, the film is structured from other films somewhere but yeah there was nothing in this. this this if anything it was just taken from my own life and from dreams and memories that I had had I just sort of put them all into one sort of film I guess I
2: think that authenticity definitely really comes through it, it feels it, it's just such a relatable film and I think anyone you know who's gone through the experience of like a first love and a breakup and that that kind of bittersweet ache you know especially in the third act like it it really comes across i want to go back to something you said earlier about the the sound not being mixed well and being too raw and stuff like that for me this is a very raw story and and very like soul-bearing and i feel like that element of it just enhances the experience of of the rest of it at least that's how i felt about it you know obviously you're the director you're you're watching it all the time you're going to nitpick little bits and pieces here but for me that was something that actually really worked
0: yeah that's what I, I definitely wanted to make it as genuine as possible because i feel like people just relate to honesty so much more with storytelling and they know when it's genuine and when you're trying to tell the truth and like with some of my other films stuff, you know things especially i guess like comic kids maybe in apocalyptic where i sort of not copying other films, but I was sort of, you know, very much just taking that structure and trying to have fun in that playground of what that film those sort of films could be. But um I thought audiences definitely relate to something super personal. And this is why I wanted to make this film because I'm like, it's a bit raw for me to, you know, bring all these things up. But it um I think audiences just relate to it. better And that's and that's I guess why maybe 41 did so well too, because there was a lot of honesty in some of that stuff as well. Similar sort of themes, I guess if you sort of look closely at it. So yeah, I'm really proud of the film for sure. And it's definitely something I, re- I love showing the paper, which is great. You
1: talk about it being relatable and it being an honest story, which I think definitely comes across. And part of why, like you said, it is so relatable is because you're being honest and you're telling an honest story. But in that you're also, as we mentioned, making a point or there's a theme right where you're saying that you're moving from you learn from that first love and you can be happy that it happened, and I think it's like that idea that like you learn from it and you move on to the next to your true love, right? There's the it even says it in the film. There's that line which obviously is not spoken, but it says you know you I forget exactly the wording of it, but you go through uh, your first love and your true love. You you go through one to get to the other, and I think it's really beautiful that it's saying something. And Forty One, like you said, is similar in a way. I think maybe this one more so than any of your other films is like you said, very relatable, very honest, not that the other ones aren't, but this one's coming directly from your life, like you said. And also I think it's really got a message that's gonna resonate with people and kind of, it's heartwarming, but it's also
2: true, like you said. There's a vulnerability there.
1: Yeah, and it's not like, oh, everything's gonna turn out perfectly. It's life is life and you get where you get, right? And you get to where you get to and it's good for the journey and you learn things along the way, but I, I, what I, you, I think a lot of people can get different things from it basically, but it does have this core message and this core theme that I think is a huge part of it. Was that something that like, as you're telling the story about your life, did that come just naturally or was that something where you're like, I want to really put this
0: point in there? Yeah. yeah it. I wasn't sure how to end the film for a long time. I wasn't sure what the message I wanted to say was. I knew what the emotions were, but I didn't know what the lessons were at all. So when I got near the end, I was like, you know what, what's going to happen here? Like, is he going to find these notes? In the, like, there was a whole idea, thing about him trying to find these notes that she'd buried. Like, you know, her secrets that she'd buried into the ground. And so there's about five different endings. There was like, you know, should he, does he find the notes and does he, or does he never find the notes? Does he find them? Does he rip them up? Does he burn them? Does he keep them? Does he, you know, what, what does he do? And then we sort of had this idea where before she buried the notes, she sort of left two behind, but they're only, they you know, ripped in half. And he didn't know what exactly what they said. So we sort of always had these, you know, ripped notes with him. And so another spoiler alert, sorry, everyone. Um, so at the end, when he does find the notes that he's been looking for this whole time, he's sort of unsure what he's looking for at one point with his metal detector on the beach. And then he can find these notes and put them back together. And there's, there's a message that she sort of left for him saying that, you know, like, I, I can't remember the exact, I do have the notes actually right up there above my desk. But um, there was something in the, in regards to, um, you know, you can't, I can't remember what the, <laughs> what the actual line was now on the on the um, text, but it was, you can't, keep me with you sort of thing, but you you can't, you can't, you know, you, you can move on from me, but you've got to leave a bit of yourself behind. There was a whole idea of like a bit of yourself is always going to be with me. And that's sort of visually represented at the end when he sort of looks back and sees, you know, himself younger with her still on the beach. And it's, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a struggle to sort of figure out exactly what the lesson was. But once I sort of started to craft it in the editing, especially it made a lot of sense. And we do actually have, there's a whole other element that's been cut out from the film. I'm not sure if you knew about this, but there was actually meant to be another writer in the film. It was meant to be another version. It's kind of like getting like with 41, I guess. It got a bit sort of complicated where there was another version of the writer sort of walking around writing stuff. And you weren't sort of sure whether he was writing about the story or a writer was writing about him writing about the story. And it sort of got, it got a bit too confusing. And I showed a few people and they were like, Who's the other guy on the beach? They they couldn't figure out who this extra person was. And I was like, nah, it's great. Like it's just, it's just this extra layer of mystery. It's gonna mess with your head. It's gonna be fantastic. And then I found that everyone just got way too confused with it. They're like, Well, I don't know who this other writer is. Like, why is there someone else on the beach writing that disappears? And I was like, okay. So I cut it out and immediately worked so much better. It was just, it was more about the emotions of the story. It wasn't trying to be, you know, a smart film. It was just trying to be a, you know, a, a good story, a good story that you could take something from. And it worked far better, which is good
1: it does feel like that message, whether or not you were saying, you know, it, it kind of came to you maybe closer to the end of it of writing it, it does seem like it's very core to the story and it's almost like maybe it was there the whole time. and then like you said, once you've kind of got that, it yeah. kind of all fit perfectly, you know and I really do think it's kind of the story was asking to say that almost
0: well yeah, yeah, like the story it taught it taught me that yeah, it's it taught me that it's you can move on and there's and it, it made a lot of sense to me that there is a bit of yourself that is left behind not that you have like you know they say the whole thing like with grief or whatever it might be that it's not that um the grief goes away just that everything else around you becomes so much bigger and more complicated that the grief just sort of seems a bit smaller in comparison to everything else you're going through all that sort of stuff was quite interesting to me so um yeah i, I think you're right i think that, yeah the, the answer was sort of there and it was just waiting to sort of be uncovered i guess not that it's that much of a revel. I think a lot of people can relate to that. But I think the whole, yeah, the whole idea that there's a there's another I've the same thing with 41. There's another version of myself somewhere that's living this other life, maybe somewhere else. And I've just got this life, which I'm super happy with. But it's just, it's, it's weird to think it's the human brain. It's our brain, you know, it's the way we think we're like the what if? What if it had have gone this way? And it couldn't have gone that way because it only went the way it did. But your brain's just like, well, what if it had gone the other way? You know, like it's it's just I think it's yeah, it's just it's our brains. It's our human brains just thinking what if way too much.
1: I am going to fight for, I think that the film is probably perfect the way it is, I love it, but I'm going to fight for, As a, I know you're a big bonus features guy, and we, we get to see like the director's commentaries and behind the scenes, which I personally love, and I'm very glad that you do that. I'm going to fight for a DVD bonus extra of the uncut with the extra writer on it. I think that that would be a very interesting, what, what does that story look like? Ah, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe you want to let this the film just be its its own one cut, but I I just oh my gosh, do I want to see what that would look like. Although like I said, I think that where you ended up with it, it's kind of like that quote where um I'm going to butcher this quote, but it's every slab of marble has a statue in it waiting to be crafted. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's kind of how this I feel like you're the you're the sculptor and and you kind of you found the story within your own life and and where you got to it at the end, you know, like this final edit of it, this the final cut that you got to is, like you said, like, like you had a song that you loved, but you, you got another song that ended up being, maybe that song's the perfect song. Maybe the second song's, the, you know, actually the right one, yeah, right? It feels yeah. like you got to that place where this film really is what it's supposed to be, how it is now.
0: Yeah, there was, uh, in regards to like deleted scenes, there really wasn't much that was cut out of this film at all. There might've been maybe a minute's worth, not even that. Uh, Where other films we've had, you know, big chunks of scenes cut out or multiple scenes cut out because you know you go to shoot something and it just doesn't work for whatever reason. So I don't know why this film worked better. Like, mate, I was sort of, I guess, if anything, I know the I know the ending got trimmed down a fair bit. There was at least another minute or two in the ending that sort of got trimmed down. But I think the actors did a really good job. Like, um, there's that end beach scene, which is probably my favourite scene in the film, just to get. It was all about looks. It was all about how they had to look at each other. And that was a really important um, factor of how authentic and, you know, how their acting could, you know, portray just through their eyes of just looking at each other. And that scene, there's a bit where Will um, stands up on the beach at the end just after, you know, he's gone from old to young. He sort of has this transformation in two separate cuts. And just the look on his face, I don't know how we did it because we weren't, we didn't sit down and like really pre-plan or meditate on this scene at all. It was just, we've got a good sunset, guys. Let's just go out and shoot it really quickly. And he just, on action, and they all did. Like, Tamara did as well. Everyone did. Everyone just had these perfect, you know, looks in their eyes for that scene. So I just got super lucky with these actors. They just really did a, an amazing job to just do what they do. And they all sort of knew what the film was. They, they really understood it, um, sometimes better than me, sometimes. Neil is, Um, he played the older Wade character. He's, like, the most interesting guy you'll ever meet. I was trying to get him to actually come here today to, Chat to you guys because he was. i think I'm seeing him tomorrow actually, but um, he was always questioning me on everything. He's just because he's not an actor; he's never acted in his life, but he can act really well, um, which is crazy. And so when we got in for the film, he would always question me. He's like, like, why is this scene in the film? Like, what, what, why does his character do that? But very just matter of factly, not not from an actor's point of view. He just want to know what his character's going to do. He's asking me why I want to have it in the film, and that was a really interesting, great thing because sometimes I would just double question myself. I'm like, oh, why is this scene in the film? this scene doesn't need to be in the film. I'm going to cut that scene out. It makes more sense to do this scene instead. So, um, yeah, Neil, Neil's great. He's really good. But he's, he's, he's not great with talking. He doesn't, you know, like he could sit here and he'd probably be quiet the whole time. But when you just talk normally to him, he's just he's a wealth of knowledge. Just an amazing person to chat to.
2: How did, how did the, your actors in general feel about the no dialogue aspect of the film?
0: They loved it. They loved it because they didn't have to, they didn't have to memorize any lines. So they thought it was great. I think Will, especially, he loved it the most. He was kind of like, you know, there's no stress on him. And he understood all the beats of it. So it wasn't like he doesn't know where he was at any point. He knew exactly what the scenes were and what was happening. And there was like a, there's a bit where, like in the film, he, for a long time, he had no friends in the film. So the Will character had, he was just like hanging out by himself, walking the streets and doing all these bits and pieces. And I said to him, we need a scene with you and friends because you've got no friends in this movie. You've got no people that you're hanging around with. So um, he goes, all right, I'll get some friends and we'll go play some basketball somewhere. And I just, you know, when and filmed them for the day, and that's in the movie, and that sort of bookends as well. Is sort of at the start and near the end also. But we just needed to sort of breathe out his character a bit more because he wasn't doing too much to begin with. So little things like that, which are really helpful. But they, yeah, the no lines thing. They they just thought it was fun and great, and they didn't have to memorize anything, and it was easier for sound. Like you know, easier for scenes. to have to have you know a sound recorder trying to you know dialogue can be difficult sometimes, really difficult in whatever location you're in. So. It just made things go a lot faster. We've got things shot heaps faster.
2: Was that challenging for you as a director to guide them on body language and facial expressions, that kind of thing?
0: No, the best, the best, this is actually the easiest film I've ever done because I knew exactly what the characters were feeling at any given time. So there's there's like, I knew exactly what position they would be in. I knew how they would be sitting. I knew what they'd be thinking. I knew how they would be, you know, if they'd be nervous or scared or whatever the, the scene was. I had to obviously read into things because I didn't know exactly what the, like, Um, the keener character would have gone through in some moments I guess but I had a pretty good idea so it was actually one of the easiest films I've ever made in that sense of directing because I knew exactly what the actors were thinking because it was it was me i had been through it already so that was um, that was really good actually that was really helpful
1: yeah how was it working with I had one a question you actually brought it up though that because in our last interview you mentioned that one of the actors was uh, not an actor by trait not a professional actor and so you've told us that it who it was now, and oh, I'm heartbroken that he wasn't able to make it today. But still, great to hear um, about him as a now as an actor. How was it working? Like, was there any differences working with people who do have a background versus him? Because he, I mean, he nails it.
0: Yeah, you, you can tell he's thinking at any given time, even when he doesn't say anything, and that's what was so great. Like, just his face was just perfect for it. No, not really. He was just, it was just like he was an actor. He just, he just took direction super easily. He always had really good questions to ask and he sort of figured things out. And it was good because sometimes you don't pick up on things when you're directing a scene. Like you, like someone will do something and then someone else will watch the film back there and go, Oh, why would that actor do that? That doesn't make any sense. That's not what real people do. And Neil was very aware of all that sort of stuff. So he was always like, oh, I think the paper should be here because I'll be able to reach them over here. Or this typewriter should be facing this way. Or this like very minute human observations of what a real person would be doing in a scene which makes which seems like common sense but sometimes you get swept away with the scene so much you don't realize where people are standing or what things are in the background and something just is like oh that's not real that's you know we've messed that up pretty badly so he was very on top of all that probably more so than the others so he just he had a different sort of way of thinking about it but he got it and he um he loves the film like he's he's watched a few times with me yeah, he thinks it, it works really well. I think it was, I think everyone was kind of impressed with how well it worked for what it was. And everyone's always surprised by how the non-dialogue thing perfectly. Like, because at first you're like, oh, this is going to get pretty boring pretty quick because no one says a word. But all of a sudden you're like, oh, I need to pay attention because someone just, you know, they picked up that or they moved this or they did this and okay, that's. And it moves as much because for a long time. I thought that the movie was too boring. I was like, this movie is far too boring. There's no action scenes. There's no bad guys. There's no like all all the usual stuff you have in a movie because it was a very experimental sort of film. So I was always making sure that the scene sort of moved along somewhat quickly as much as there's some long takes sometimes in the film. I wanted to make sure that at any given point something was happening or moving towards the next thing. So it wasn't dwelling on nothing for too long because a lot of the movie essentially could say is about nothing in some scenes, but I think that the actors do such a great job that you just, you go with it quite genuinely, which is lucky, lucky that we got them. So, yeah.
1: It's really interesting to hear you talk about the behind the scenes things like, the small things that like oh making sure this looks like natural and the scene looks like what would actually be happening That things are in the right locations and you talked about adding that basketball scene it's so crazy because as i'm watching it i'm like oh it's cool he's very he's a lone guy he'll go out and have a beer by himself and hang on the goal post of the soccer net and he'll go stand kind of looking over the city on that almost like Cliff that he's standing on at one point at night. And I like that about the character. And because I noticed that then the basketball scenes, I'm like, oh, so he does have friends. He just chooses then to kind of be a lone wolf. And it's kind of like you notice it as you're watching. And it's it's interesting to hear you like, you know, as you're making it, you add that scene in there. And then it's like, you know, me as the viewer, it totally, it's doing exactly what you want it to do, right? It's just crazy then hearing the behind the scenes of it. And I love that kind of stuff because as the viewer, you don't always get the chance to, see the bacon uh, get made to see how the sausage is made. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I think that hearing about you talk about it actually enhances it. Whereas if there wasn't the passion behind it, right. If it was kind of more just making the movie to get a movie made, then, then the Mm -hmm. behind the scenes stuff kind of detracts from it. Right. Because then you're learning, Oh, like they didn't really put the effort into it, but then talking to someone like you, who's so passionate about it, it's such a true story. Right. Then you learn like, Oh, that, then enhances the story. And I love hearing, like, again, there's just a passion behind it and then noticing those small things that then do come through in the film. It's just great.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a few things in the film too where we, um, we had an issue with COVID made an, an issue because we couldn't get people together sometimes. So like at the beginning of the film, there's a scene where Keena, you think she's going to see Will at this party. It, it sort of, it almost like tricks you into thinking that they're going to meet that quickly and that easily. And um, uh, so, yeah, so she sort of hooks up with this one guy and, you know, takes her back to his, her house sort of thing. And then Will was meant to hook up with his other girl. There was meant to be a scene with them, sort of like, you know, like kissing on a bench somewhere, drinking wine or something. And we just couldn't shoot it because COVID just we couldn't get people to kiss basically or <laughs> drink COVID <laughs> or get them anywhere near each other. So that um, that that just got cut out completely. And there was a few, there's another scene as well that I just remembered that got cut out where it was meant to be near the end of the film where Neil finishes the story and he's meant to go back through the film and, and all through, like previously in the film, you'd see him drop pages along the way. Um, which we didn't use in the film. Um, and then at the end, he goes back and he walks through all the scenes that you've seen and he picks up these pages, like collecting them, like, you know, they're finished now to be put together. It was a really cool idea, but we just never got it to work. We shot a, a bit of it and it just wasn't working for some reason. So that's that's something I wish we probably would have had in the film. There's a couple of scenes of that that we did shoot, but just overall, that story just wasn't going to gonna work. It was more of just like a, almost like a dance in the film rather than a, a scene. But um, I, had a, yeah, I had a lot of ideas for scenes with music, especially that never never made it to the final um, shooting schedule, I guess. But a lot of ideas, a lot of ideas of how to sort of show, you know, going back in time and forward in time and crossing over and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah.
2: It's funny, like you were talking about, Duncan, how these things line up in the production and then it just makes sense once it all comes together. And it's it's funny how much that happened during the production of this film and just how well that like ties into one of the major themes of the film. It's so serendipitous and so crazy to think about. And we were talking earlier. About you know how the past is perfect because it happened the way it happened, and I think that's such an important idea. And it's definitely something that a lot of young men struggle with is this idea of of control. And I want things to go a certain way, and when they don't go a certain way, I'm really upset about it. And that kind of letting go. And um, there's a song lyric I love that's you know shit happened how it happened, so the past is perfect, and that is such an important idea. And I love that it's brought to the fore in this film because I can't really think of of many other instances in movies where this is something that's like really driven home or discussed so so openly and in so much detail.
0: Yeah, that's I agree with that. Because movies, I feel like people need to, I, I love to see more experimental films where people just don't, like obviously with movies, there's, there's a certain structure you're meant to have to make a movie work. People always say, you know, you have your, your character that goes through something and gets through it, sort of thing. And I love the idea of just trying to just try things that no one's tried before and try to figure out ways that movies can work that no one really has tried it. So this for me was very experimental of, I'm going to try scenes that you wouldn't see in other movies. They're just because they're probably, it's very artsy, I guess you could say. And there's some pretty weird, wild movies out there. And I did watch a few movies that had no dialogue in them. I think there was a French film that was just a guy walking through a city for like an hour and a half. That was the movie. And it was actually quite good, surprisingly. It won some big like, you know, uh, film festival or something many years ago, but. I, I from that movie, I remember taking the idea that I could just show someone just walking for a while and not have to really do too much with that character, and that was that could be a scene in itself. But yeah, I think it's I think it's important to have films that try things that no one has tried before, and and try things that come from how you feel rather than what you think. I think that's really important because yeah, people feel things that they don't talk about a lot of the time, and if a movie like this can bring out something in people, then that's that's a good thing, I guess. It's good.
1: As you're describing it we talk about the time aspect of it and obviously we're in different time periods here we have our main character in two different time periods two different ages and we have him remembering his past and in the scenes of the past we see him where he's kind of remembering it and like i love the campfire scene or the fireside scene when he's sitting in the chair next to them as she's singing the song and i just love that he's there and also there's another scene when they're both after a fight sitting on opposite sides of the bed and he's between them with his typewriter beautiful imagery there but my question is because this plays with time you have other films that also play with time 41 being the biggest example of it but comic kids as well has different time periods and is similar in that it's remembering past events as well so is that something i know that we'll actually get into some of what's further down the line which we spoke a little bit about in our last interview but is that something that you really like to kind of play with I think of Christopher Nolan as a director, for example. He, a lot of his films deal with time, and so do yours in a certain way, where sometimes it's at the forefront, sometimes it's more an aspect of it that's more in the background. But is that something that you find yourself interested in?
0: Yeah, very much. Um, I'm not sure why exactly that is. I just I like the idea of telling stories from someone that's been through it already and sort of looking back at how it was, I guess. And A lot of my films deal with that sort of thing. I'm not sure. I'm, I Yeah, I'm not sure why... I... I just do for some. I'm not sure why. It just works out that way. I know that we had a lot of with this film. I had to make the decision whether or not this film was going to like be set in two very distinct timelines to sort of show present day and maybe like something you know in the early 2000s or 90s sort of thing. That was sort of a difficult um, decision to make because I didn't want to have to worry about costumes and I wanted to make this <laughs> as cheap as it could be. And so um, I put into the script. It's it's in the script that when he gets his note from his publisher at the beginning, he says like, "Don't make it medieval like your last film. Make it modern. Make it now." So he decides to write the story set in modern times, but it's about his past. So that was sort of a way we could sort of get around the, like because he's because the characters aren't necessarily meant to be real. He's writing about them um, and they sort of come to life out of, you know, out of his typewriter type of thing. And so I thought um, we'll make it that he's just making it modern. It's just, it's a modern story. It's, it's in the same sort of time as him. And he's got no issues with that. So, and most people go along with it. Every so often someone's like, hang on, if, you know, if they're in the past, how come they're in, the, we're in the same sort of clothes as what, you know, it's modern times. I'm like, well, because that's the story he's writing. He's, he gets to write it however he likes. So that's how we got around it. Not everyone picks up on that. Some people sort of get a bit confused with all that sort of stuff, but I have to explain it every so often. So maybe if people listen to this podcast, they'll understand that he, he gets, he, he's told to write a modern story about his past and that's what he does. So that's a, a little trick, a little trick you can use of, you know, story to, <laughs> to save a lot of time and money to try to make, because Comic Kids was, you know, as you said, back in the 60s or whatever it was, or the 50s, and that was... um a real hassle to make that work because you've got to worry about everything that everyone's wearing and doing and everything, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it, it just made things easy. And I wanted to make this as, as easy as it could be for this film.
2: Also a quick aside. I loved the Easter eggs in his note of ideas that had references to past films you've done. I thought that was a very, you know, obviously for us, me and Duncan having seen all your movies were like jumping up, like pointing at the screen. That was a fun little detail and future film ideas too future film
1: ideas too are in there i noticed
0: yeah there's a couple there's a couple in there not all not all of them are there but there's a few of them yeah i just i thought that would just be fun i guess that was that was actually took the longest time the scenes when he's on the computer at the beginning and he's sort of like you know searching around for keena they took the longest because i could essentially direct those scenes cuz i just had to screen capture my computer and just you know type away and zoom in and all that sort of stuff but to get the perfect timing and the movement of how the mouse moves when he's you know looking at something and how long it stays on text for that it took it and then all the sounds that go with it all like the mouse clicks were added in and all of the you know the scrolling noises and his breathing noises and you know background suburban sounds that it took the longest i was that the most complex editing in the film just because it wasn't a, a natural thing you had to sort of everything that was on screen you had to create on screen as well so it was it was essentially a special effect maybe no not really but it was um yeah it just took a lot. I just remember yeah many like it took a few weeks of me just every night just you know figuring out what it's what it's going to show and what it's not going to show and what I'm allowed to show and all that sort of stuff so yeah
1: speaking of special effects you did mention that there's minimal special effects in this but I was curious is there a scene because to me I mean if there are special effects I didn't notice them and I looked all very in camera to me so is there something you can point to?
0: There's yeah there's a few there's a few you probably wouldn't notice um uh, some of it's we had to remove people. From the so the start, when the knights are fighting at the start, there was, because when we filmed that scene, there was just, there was a wedding on that day in this forest. And there was like people walking everywhere. There was food trucks. It was like, there's literally like about a hundred people circling around us as we were filming that scene. And I was like, this is meant to be an empty forest. This is going to be impossible. And people are coming up saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, I said, oh, we're filming, you know, this movie. So we had to, I had to remove a few people in the background. So there's a few just you know, basic effects of just having to, you know, copy and paste sort of little yeah you know, keyframes around people to, to delete them. There's one scene which you've probably never noticed that's in there, which if once you notice it, you think it's cool. But when you don't know it's there, you don't know it's there. There's a scene where they're arguing. There's a montage of him when he's like, you know, the, the fallen in love montage, I guess it's in the middle of the film, which I love. He they're arguing about something. It's a very, and I wish actually this is what we I'm jumping around here, but I wish we had have shot some more serious arguments to cut into the films, so would have made it a bit more dynamic. But anyway, um, there's a bit when they're arguing and he walks behind them and he's sort of like got his notes and he's writing notes and watching them and, you know, observing them. They're in slow motion and he's in normal motion. So we had to shoot them with the green screen. So there, there's a giant green screen behind them in that scene where they're arguing. Then we took away the green screen and took away them and then just got him walking around and blended them together. So when you watch it carefully, he's walking just normal motion at like, you know, 24 frames. And they're shot at like 120 frames that slowed down to 24. So it's just... Um, very simple you've never noticed it too much but it's it was a somewhat complex effect to work and it did work but um little things like that i'm trying to think of what other effects are in the film i'm sure there's a few other little bits and pieces but nothing major nothing major like that but i was
2: there's that great moment where he he drops the pieces of paper on the ground and they kind of freeze frame and then they run into their freeze frames
0: ah uh, yes 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 that's there's a famous music video clip which i think might have originated in australia i'm not too sure but they they use that effect a lot better than we ever did but I sort of I like that idea of him just sort of trying to be really forensic about the relationship and just trying to sort of you know measure you know I took three steps to get to here before I looked at her and then I did this and all that sort of stuff I kind of fell in love with those ideas I wish we had more of that too in the film but um yeah I thought it'd be a really good moment if he's got these little notes of you know things that they did and he's placing them around they sort of just pop up and appear and but they're frozen in time and then they sort of walk into those moments as if it's almost predetermined it was always meant to happen that way yeah, and people like those sort of scenes. It's only, it's only two of them. I, I couldn't have just done it once. Once just would have been, it would have stood out too much, but I think twice is the perfect number to show it. And that's, yeah, and that, that was pretty easy to do. You just sort of set up a camera static. So you have it on a tripod that's still, you get the characters just to just walk through normally as if nothing is unusual. And then later in, you just go in and you freeze the shots you want and you cut around them. And then you just keep those shots there. And then when you play the scene back later, you just you know have them frozen there and then sort of walk into their own, frame and then you delete that frame and they just keep walking with it um, and then I added in like a handheld effect over the camera so it sort of gives it the effect that you know it's the camera was moving at the same time like how could that effect exist if the camera is moving and that just it just sells it better it just makes it you know the audience it's kind of like you know I think uh was it Jurassic Park when Spielberg wanted to move the camera when the gallimimuses were running over the hill and they're like you can't move the camera like this is, this is complex CGI we can't get the camera and he's like well, well figure out a way and so they did it and it just sells it so much more to have the camera just like, you know, shaking around like crazy. And, and now every special effect is a handheld shot because everyone's just, that's just the way that, it, you know, it was like pre-1993, you couldn't move the camera. And then all of a sudden you could and everyone just went nuts with it. So, yeah.
1: And speaking, we were just talking about that opening scene and it's got this opening shot, which is beautiful in the forest where it kind of goes over the pieces of paper that are on the ground. And you talked about this being super low budget. Yeah. I want to know how you accomplished that because I'm watching that and I'm like, and throughout the film, it looks, I mean, you do this with all your films. Cause you know, 41, you said you did real shoestring and you have a video on that actually, so check that out on YouTube. If you guys haven't watched that, there's a video on how Glenn made 41 on, on such a low budget, but I'm always impressed by how professional it looks. I want to know how you did that shot because from the opening, I'm like, oh, this is like real, real, like complex stuff that it looks like you're doing.
0: Well initially the opening scene was always these knights fighting in the forest. I thought it would just be a really different visual thing to see and then have him on the typewriter and when he stops typing they disappear. Really simple just you know cutting effect shots. And we would shot that and I thought it doesn't it doesn't have the op- doesn't have an opening feeling. It was just like I think I had some close ups on some trees just sort of like the camera just waved past some trees. I'm like I need something a bit more cinematic, a bit more epic, a bit more something. So I thought it'd be really cool to have like a really steady shot just going all through the trees. Then the camera sort of drops down. You see all these papers on the ground and the papers sort of fly away. So I went back to the forest with my drone. So a little Mavic Air drone. I put down all the pieces of paper and because it's an open to the public Redwood Forest attraction that's in this place called Warburton in Australia, people just turn up all the time. So there was people walking through the shot all the time and they're picking up all the papers because I thought it was like some sort of weird like art exhibition or something. And they're like, oh, what's this? Someone's put some poems on the ground for us. And I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm just filming. Like, oh, sorry, sorry. They threw the papers back down. And then when no one was there, I just sort of flew the drone through. And I thought, wouldn't it be really cool to have the papers flying? Like like a bit of wind would look really cool. And I thought it's not going to happen. I'll just have to fly over them. But the best thing was the way it worked out. It's because the drone just shoots air out from underneath it, from underneath the, the fans. It just pushed the papers out. So the drone air is just pushing those papers out. And I think I did four shots. And that was like the second one. It just looked the best. And what, like I said, there were some people in the background I had to sort of digitally remove as well. But um, it worked out great. And that shot just, and I wanted it to be long. I think it's like a 20-second shot or something. It's so want a really long, slow, you know, here's the opening of the movie, like what's going to happen, what's going to happen sort of feeling. And yeah, that's yeah, just shot on a, on a really cheap drone, which I've since got a better drone since then. But And I think I actually had my new drone when we did film the rest of the movie, but I preferred to shoot it on the older one because I had already shot a lot of the film on the older one. So I wanted to match the quality. And I used the drone a fair bit in the film. There's a bit when he's running along the beach that was on the drone, and also at the end when he's running in slow motion that was on the drone. But I had to use ND filters, which I'd never used before on a drone, so I had to learn how to use the hell ND thing to get the proper. You know, people get funny about not having the 50 shutter speed on their cameras, so I had to make sure it was 50 to for the true. You know, digital cinema purists, I guess, out there that like that sort of thing. So, and it does look better, but um, yeah, I've never had used ND filters before, and I've never used ND filters since except for that movie. But it just yeah, it made made a difference, which was good.
2: Yeah. They're, they're a pain in the. I fly a drone for work. We talked about this, but we touched on it briefly in our last episode. I do real estate video, like for my main job and I fly the drone. God, what a pain in the <laughs> Luckily I don't have to appease, you know, any cinema purists. Yep. Yep. But you did well. It looks great.
0: I do. Yeah. I do a lot of drone work as well. We probably talked, I probably did talk about this last time, a lot of drone work for yeah real estate and corporate stuff all the time. And I enjoy it. The Mavic. I did have the Mavic Air. That was a hassle. That drone because it was just really bad connection. So it would just disconnect. I'd be you know flying over somewhere and it would just disconnect on me, and I just have to stand there and just hope that it came back. But I've got the Mavic Air two, and that one's far better connection. So it's great. um,
2: Yeah, that's the one I use. But I'm I'm in the mountains, so it's still like all the trees and everything. I don't have the advertised range, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think the Mavic Air two is meant to be ten kilometers, but I've only ever got it to about not even three or four. So um, yeah, I I don't know, but they're getting better and better. I, I and I thought of this the other. I was actually out the other day doing some real estate work, and I thought eventually real estate agencies will just have a drone on the top of their building, and they'll just push a button, type in an address, push a button, the drone will fly off, take the photo, fly back, and that will just our you know, industry will be redundant. We'll be out of work. Yeah. I think that's what will eventually happen. And that's not a far fetch because I, the agencies that I've worked for here, they used to use helicopters. They see helicopters flying over to take aerial photos and that whole industry is gone now. So it's not a far fetch to think that, you know, a, a drone that can already fly away and come back will be, you know, owned and operated by real estate agencies and it can fly like, you know, 50 kilometers out and take a photo and come back safely. It'll happen. It will happen, unfortunately, I think,
1: sadly. We're talking now about the technical aspects of getting those shots done, doing with a drone, the editing and the SFX that went into it, which again, I'll just say all are great. And I, I really do. I know I'm just gushing about your work because I really am a huge fan. But going off that, you talked in the past about on Comic Kids, you learned that you should screen your movies to an audience. And you said that you've learned things as you go. And it really feels like you're again perfecting your craft and that's not to say that each movie isn't good on its own but it does feel like you learn things with each one so i was wondering what you took from your past movies when you were making this film and what you learned in the making of dreams of paper and ink for future
0: films good question i know we we did screen the movie to uh, maybe about 50 or 60 people over the course of a few months i had sort of you know just little groups of people come in to watch it Mainly friends and family, which probably isn't a good idea necessarily, but there was a few people that like, there was a few people that had, knew nothing about it that came to see it, and they had some really good points. They actually helped the movie a lot because their feedback, especially the extra writer at the end, that was a big thing that they were just completely confused about. They did think that the I guess the drama in the film took a while to kick in, like it was sort of right near the, the second half of the film rather than the start. I couldn't do much about that because that's how the film was yeah little, little things like that where um, having people look at it from another perspective helped heaps, and that got us all sorts of different ideas of how to you know complete the film and finish it off I did plan to shoot a lot of more I guess location shots and just sort of like show the the setting that we're in there's a few in the film but there probably should have been at least another 10 more throughout the film that were just never shot and that was simply just me just kind of being over it by the end I was like I've been working on this for the past year or so I don't want to go out again and shoot some more stuff So I just, I locked it in and just sort of finished off and it still works fine. Um, There is that scene, I think when he's in the bedroom, when it's right there's a storm outside and he goes under the sheets and he sort of sees different, you know, scenes play out under the sheets. I wish I had have had, you know, an exterior shot of the house with rain on it or something just to sort of sell that there's a storm outside, but it works without it. I think the sounds work fine for that scene. What did I learn from other films to make this film? That's really, I might have to get back to you on that question. I'm not too sure what the answer is, to be honest. I haven't got it. I don't remember. Obviously I must've learned something. I'm sure I did. I just can't remember exactly what it would have been. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, (laughs) I don't know. I I just, I just, you just get better at what you do. The more you do it, I guess. And I've just sort of stuck with it. Like my earlier films were pretty awful movies, like pretty bad, you know, badly edited, badly acted, but like everything was, you know, pretty, if you look at my really early stuff. And then, as you keep going, you just sort of enjoy the process so much, you just can't stop yourself, and you keep making more things. And that's a that's a good thing for filmmakers, I think, to have the like be fearless with making your films. Like, don't try to do the perfect everything. Just go out and just do it, because as you do it, you will learn just by having hands on experience. It's like you can't. It's how you learn to walk. You got to fall over heaps. You know, kids fall over all the time when they're trying to walk, and you got to do that with films. You got to make all the mistakes, and you can read as many books as you like and be told all the lessons that are out there, but you have to make them yourself, and that's the worst part that kind of sucks so yeah i'm I'm trying i really i'm trying to think of what i've i'm sure there was something that i've learned i'm trying to remember what it was i think it was it was to do with dialogue i know that for sure i remember dialogue like people just looking at each other was just as captivating as what people said to each other that was one thing i remember it was like it doesn't words aren't as important it's as looks can be and having moments to you know i I was watching um aliens the other day james cameron's aliens I'm a huge james james jim cameron james cameron fan and he uh, there's a scene in aliens where ripley is just in this you know space pod with her cats and she's just sitting there just patting her cat for like 45 seconds and like you would they wouldn't put that into a movie these days it would, it's all like it's all like action packed straight into it boom, explosions this that quick dialogue like just films have just got so much faster um and just to take the moment to sort of show her just enjoying it you know patting her cat it was just you know that's it was it was quite interesting to watch and i, I it sort of just it sets you in that mood and that's that's a really good film though that's and he's a great filmmaker but yeah just just taking the, the time to let the scenes breathe far more than other movies would and just to really go slow with things there's a scene in the film where Keena's meant to sneak wade into her house because she wants to you know take him to her bedroom i guess and we had this whole scene set up where he's meant to you know come through the back window and then the dad is walking through the kitchen he's hiding under the tables and chairs it's like a 15 16 shot setup we're going to shoot and I was quite tired and we'd just been shooting all day. And I'm like, I don't really want to film this scene like that. It's going to take forever. So I thought, well, what if we just do everything in one shot? What if I just walk backwards through the hallway? You guys walk into the hallway. He comes out, you hide a bit. You go into this room. He walks out this room. You guys come through this door. He goes back and it's all one shot. It never cuts away. And that took us like, you know, half an hour to shoot that scene. Where it would have taken us maybe three or four hours to shoot the other way. So just finding ways. And that's, that's, I guess, an old Hollywood TV thing, like where the cameras couldn't move too much and that's where getting back to steven spielberg i guess like you know he couldn't move the camera much when he first started because that's what tvs were like like big heavy giant cameras that you couldn't move around too much so you had to figure out ways to have scenes play out in long form i guess and just have it one shot and that's his style of the time where like you know, the camera will come up to a close-up then it sort of moves to a wide shot then it comes back to this but it's all one shot and i kind of i love that i love just having scenes play out in one shot so i tried to put a few of those in the movie and um yeah i like that so that's Probably the best answer i've got for that question i guess
1: thank you so we've touched on a lot of what went down in dreams of paper and ink a lot of what we loved about it i'll say real quickly that another thing that shot you know another happy accident i think where it's like you learn behind the scenes and i love that shot it's actually one that stood out to me as really like i love them going and hiding and i love her reactions be like oh we almost got caught like that look on her face is great great face acting in this movie which is something you really need i think it really benefits from the fact that you had actors who know how to show their emotions to their face really well um and like some of the crying scenes i was like wow they're really they're getting it they're getting the emotions coming but i will say just we've gotten we've touched a lot on what happened in dreams of paper and ink i don't want to skip over any questions you have gardner but if you ha- don't have anything else we'll go to just a little quick wrap up and kind of some questions on what's for the future
2: i like looking forward to the future <laughs>
1: Yeah. yes awesome so for listeners that may not know and may not have listened to our last episode you described dark epic which is obviously also the name of your production company but you said that it's something that you have in the pipeline that you've really been thinking about and you want to make it yourself as well for listeners that didn't listen to the last episode can you describe a little bit um again like a teaser of what we may expect from that and also is that going to be what's next for you i know you you've just finished dreams of paper ink you're not ready for to start making the next film yet but is that what's on the horizon
0: yeah i think since i spoke to you guys last i've written two scripts um neither of them are the dark epic film unfortunately (laughs) that yeah that's so yeah the dark epic it's a science fiction film i don't want to say too much about it but i can't i actually to be honest don't remember what i mentioned last time but it's a it's a very big scale science fiction film about history and the future and like it's really crazy sort of um very science fiction time travel sort of movie i've only got maybe the first third of that film written and sort of in my head and it's it's very awesome, very solid, very interesting. And I have sort of no idea how to finish it. And I'm really stuck on a good, I sort of know where I want it to go, but I I have no idea how to make it work properly, unfortunately. The other script, I wrote a script called Ancestry Road, which is about sort of like family and death and all that sort of stuff yeah ancestry road that's that script's finished i've got to do a rewrite on the third act because it sort of went somewhere that it probably shouldn't have gone unfortunately and I'm midway through a sort of been somewhat hired to do a family film script which i'm working on at the moment which is um all to do with unicorns it's a unicorn film apparently so that's that's being worked on at the moment very sort of pg sort of thing um I'm not sure what I'm gonna make next. Like, I saw my cousin yesterday and he's like, what are you, you know, what are you working on next? you finished, you know, dreams of paper and inks done. What are you you know, surely? Because he's like, every time he asks me and I have no idea. Like a week later I've got something up and going. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm gonna make next. Um, I just have no I have no idea. There's a few ideas floating around. It could be Ancestry Road, it could be the dark epic, it just depends on what happens. Um, it could be a very small film again. I might because it's it's hard, like with three young kids, it's hard to go out and about for months on end to shoot a film. So I could very well just, you know, go and shoot a little horror movie. Again, somewhere or something there's just you know something that's that's fun that just keeps me creative and keeps me making something, and then sort of save the bigger one for later, but I'll probably do a bigger one next. I'd imagine because Dreams was quite small, but yeah, that's I don't have an answer, unfortunately, I'm not sure of what's going to be happening next, but a lot of scripts are being written sort of every day, so yeah,
2: maybe looking a little further to the future, do you ever see yourself coming back to a film you've made and and doing any kind of sequel, or are you just a new story? Let's do that kind of guy.
0: I've mostly been a new story thing because um, I have had a lot of interest of people wanting the sequel for 41 and the comic kids too, actually. And I've sort, I've got somewhat of an idea how to make those films, but I don't think I ever will. I think they're just standalones, just let them do their thing. Yes. I've got no interest to make, like when I was younger, I remember I made, I'm sure I made sequels to little dodgy, you know, short films that I worked on when I was younger. I'd, I'd made a few sequels and they were just for the fun of it. Nothing too serious, but um no, I've got no no interest to make sequels. I I feel like it would um, I don't know. I, I uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily. It sounds awful to say. I don't think that highly of my films, if that makes sense. Like I know some people are, like love them and are huge fans, but I just think that it's a fun. It's it's a hobby. It's a, like it's a passion, fun thing that I do. I don't take them completely too seriously. It's not my life's dedication. It's sort of like it's two thirds of my life's dedication. I sort of keep a third for other things, and I just love creating things, just like all sorts of different art sort of stuff i guess like uh, videos and music and stuff i just love the whole process of that so i'm 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 always making something i'm always editing something like right now i've got you know a few projects on the computer which i'm working on that aren't movies that are just other things so i just i love just experimenting with all sorts of stuff and just seeing you know what things i can and can't make i guess but um yeah no sequels i don't i've got no plans for any sequels i think it would um just i don't know just i just wouldn't enjoy it i don't think as much as a, a, a fresh project i guess but good question it's a good question
1: (laughs) going off of that would you ever consider and this might be for people who have seen apocalyptic this may be actually kind of hard but would you ever consider doing something like a trigsiverse where uh, another character it's not necessarily a sequel but like you see maybe note of like maybe you see the book from dreams of paper and ink someone's reading that in another one so you're like oh so that exists in this world as well um so i was wondering if you ever thought about that
0: yeah, we've, we've already done that. There's, there's We have already sort of done that sort of stuff in a lot of the films. Um, if you look, there is a copy of the Comic Kids DVD in Dreams of Paper and Ink. If you look, I won't tell you where it is. I'll leave it as an Easter egg, but it is in there, hidden away somewhere. There's a blank, one of my grandmother's blankets is in a lot of my films. I think it's in, it's in 41, it's in Dreams, it's in Comet Kids as well. And that's, we've just sort of used these, these blankets that she knits and we just have put them in the background. There's a few other bits and pieces where, yeah, so things have, so as, essentially, yeah, I guess you could say that. I know for a long time that I made this, well, I it, I thought it was a fictional town, but I found out it wasn't, Um, the, the name Blytheville. That's always been throughout my films. That It's always like Cinemaphobia was set in Blytheville and uh, Luna was set in Blytheville and 41 was set in Blytheville, like all this Blytheville sort of talk. So a lot of my movies have been set. And then I think even Dreams is also set in Blytheville, I'm sure that the note, that she leaves for the lost keys is, you know, Blytheville Pier or something like that is written on there. So yes, essentially, yeah, like it is. It is all somewhat set in the same sort of, not not really, but it's 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 hinted at that there is some sort of connection between these movies. So, but I like that a triggers a verse or trigsverse or something. Yeah, yeah, a, that's good. It's good.
1: I love it, and that just means that next time I'm watching all these films, I'm gonna have something to look out for other than just enjoying the rewatch and getting something. We've said on this podcast in the past that every time you watch a film it's like watching a new film because you're getting a different experience from it because now you've you're taking different experiences from your life or the fact that you've seen it already it's a different experience so now that different experience will involve me looking for i'm gonna find comic kids in dreams of paper and ink for sure
0: yeah if let me know if you can find it and and even if you can't find it let me know because i'll be curious to know if it's too difficult to see but it is it is there it is um you just hidden away so yeah see if you can find it it's good <laughs>
1: In the past interview, you did mention that you've had some trouble with deciding what kind of accents you want to use. Like you decided to go English for the comic kids and you obviously went no dialogue in this one, which is different. Obviously, you know, there was different things that led to the no dialogue. But it's interesting that so now it's been two films with no Australian dialogue. And I know that you've or will you there is an Australian character in Comet Kids. So we'll shout out to, to that character. But you've mentioned that like Australians maybe don't love the Australian accent. I know as Americans, we do. We think it's it's and I think it's also very it's it it comes across well in movies, too. Like, I think that it is very.
2: It's got a novelty to it because no one can do a good Australian accent that isn't from Australia. It ends up sounding like four different countries. So when you hear an authentic one, you're like, whoa.
0: I remember I was in I'm not sure if I mentioned this last time I was in uh, Vegas a few years ago and I was in a lift uh, like an elevator. And these people popped in and I said something like, oh, hello. And it blew this guy's mind. He's like, whoa, where are you from? I said, oh, Australia. And he's like, whoa. Like he just couldn't believe that He I was Australian for some reason. Yeah, I think Australians have uh, like the, the international film market for whatever reason, just Australian films just don't do well. I don't know why exactly that is. We don't take huge risks with um, budgets or stories and stuff. We Especially the films that get made in Australia, They're very sort of, you know, Can find sort of productions that happen and so I always had an issue with having Australian accents so yeah the comic kids was a really easy decision to have it as an American thing it helped us do and make that film as big as it was and then I really struggled with this film I was like I don't want people to be American again because I don't feel like Australians can do the accent that great and I didn't feel as if I want it to be Australian because it just kind of it just sort of (laughs) We don't hear a lot of Australian accents on, in movies. Like most of the, all the movies we get here are American, like pretty much 99% are, you go to the cinema. I think I said that last time, all American films. So it's weird to hear Australian accents and it's kind of, and Australians play up the Australian accent in movies. So it's not like me talking now. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't sound like this in a movie. I'd sound like this, mate. Hey, you go, mate. Like I would sound so like over the top and that's, they just play it up because they feel that it needs to sell to the Americans. And that's, that's, yeah, it's kind of a mess unfortunately. And so, um, yeah, it was, I thought, when I thought no dialogue, I thought that's the perfect way to make this movie because I don't have to deal with any accents and right? it was great. And so we've got Australian songwriters, two, uh, two or three Australian songs in the film and three American songs in the film. And I, they sort of sound the same. A lot of a lot of Australian singers these days sound American anyway. So um, that's just, yeah, this is how it works. It was just uh, just easy, just easy. So I'm curious to see how the film does, sales wise when that sort of picks up because it it, essentially could do quite well in all countries because people you know you don't have to stress too much about what they're saying because it's all done through look the only thing would be i guess writing when there's writing in the film because you got the issue of um having to translate text but yeah it's not a big deal with dialogue so we will see we will see
1: talking about australian filmmakers and australian films in general and you know maybe the lack of visibility that they get which is unfortunate and especially you know. In the foreign markets, like you're talking about in Australia, you get a lot of foreign movies that are dominating your box office, but then it's like as an American, I know I don't want to speak for everyone, but I know for me, the movies that are pitched to me often are American made movies, right? You go on even streaming sites or word of mouth, you're getting pitched movies that are made American. And that's why it's hard to discover these filmmakers and we love, I mean, we've talked to Andrew F Pierce who covers a lot of the Australian independent filmmakers and a lot of, he tries to focus on, you know, voices that aren't being heard. And we love doing that as well. And we love finding for ourselves, people who are making these great films. Like I said, I stumbled on 41 on Amazon prime one day and was blown away by it. Right. And I it really changed my, my view on like, you know, you watch movies and there's movies that really hit you and they're like, okay, yeah. Like I've been changed by this movie and 41 is the same way. And so we really like, getting the opportunity to find creative filmmakers filmmakers who are making stuff that is so honestly brilliant. Like your, your work. I know I've said, it, I've gushed about you. I love your work and we want to find more of this. And we want to share them with our audience. So we'd love to ask, we ask all of our guests this, if there is an independent filmmaker and in particular, maybe even Australian independent filmmaker that we can look out to maybe our audience could check out their work and us as well so that we can learn more.
0: Yeah. There's um, a good friend of mine, uh, Stuart or Stu, Stu Stanton he's a filmmaker that i've known he he actually helped us out a little bit on comic kids in 41 as well um and he's got a movie that came out a few years ago called no such thing as monsters and a comedy that he made many years ago i think it's uh charlie bonnet which is hilarious that didn't i don't think it got a huge sort of release charlie bonnet but it is a really funny film so i would definitely recommend uh stuff or Stu, i guess we call him and he just he only lives like about not even an hour away from me and we've kept in touch over the years and he's a really cool guy so yeah, check out his films. Stu Stanton. He's um got some good stuff. Got some good stuff going, that guy.
1: Awesome. We will absolutely be checking out his work. No such thing as monsters, just is titles sometimes grab you. That one grabs me. Just like when you said Ancestry Road, that one grabbed me as well. I wanted to know about that one as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So it's like a good title can, can really grab you just like a, like a good poster can grab you too, which you shouldn't judge a, a, a book or a movie by its cover, but that's part of the creative filmmaking process. And it does help <laughs> no such thing as monsters. I'm going to be checking out. And I, you know, based on your recommendation, I'm sure that it'll be really good. I do want to thank you so much for joining us today. I, it has been great. Our first recurring guest. We love your work. We can't wait to share it with our audiences. And we really want people to see Dreams of Paper and Ink. If you haven't seen 41, Apocalyptic, Comic Kids, Cinemaphobia, The Follow is on YouTube, I know. Lunar is on YouTube. Check them out. I know Glenn has said that some of his earlier work isn't that great. I don't agree. I think The Follow is great. It's got a great story to it, too. It's, it's going to get you it's – it's gripping. It's going to get you interested in it. So thank you for all that. Follow on Facebook. We have Dreams of Paper and Ink, its own page. There's Dark, Dark Epic's um, own page as well. I will be linking those in the description of this podcast. You can just go scroll through the description, click on those, give them a follow. You'll find out when Dreams of the Paper and Ink is coming out for American audiences. Well, if you follow along, you'll be able to track that. And you'll find out if you follow Dark Epic, what is coming next and when Glenn is coming out with more stuff and when you can get excited to really dig into more work, which I'm always excited for. That's why I'm asking you all these questions about what's next, because I'm just, you know, champing at the bit to get more. So Thank you so much. Is there any other, like, did I miss anything that you want people to look out for, like following you? I know. I know you said you're not that active on Twitter, but I know Facebook you are. Instagram as well.
0: We've got a new, um, there's a, we've got a new Instagram page for Dreams of Paper and Ink, which came out, I only created that, I think, two days ago. So we're trying to get people on board for that at the moment, just to sort of help with the cinema release mainly in Australia. So perhaps some, some new photos up there soon. And um, yeah, people can check out. It. It's just, yeah. I always just say to people, just Google me. It's the best way to find my stuff without me having to send 50 links or something to all the different works and stuff. It does sound a bit cheesy. It's like, oh, just Google me. But um, it's the quickest way to see any work. But, yeah, um, yeah, 41s on YouTube. That's the best place to see 41. It's probably got the best quality, I think, on YouTube. It's got the 1080p file on there. And, yeah, all the other films are just available. You just, I think you can just Google those two actually, to find because I, I, I can't keep up with all the places that they're streaming on at the moment. They're sort of all over the place. So, yeah. Just just Google me. It's the best way to
2: do it. And check Glenn out on YouTube. You get a lot of really cool, we mentioned this in our first episode, you get a lot of really cool uh, behind the scenes information on Glenn's YouTube channel. So definitely go check that out. We're big behind the scenes guys over here. Glenn, thank you so much for, for coming back on and for sharing your time with us. This
0: was just an absolute blast. Cool. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it.
1: There you have it, folks. That was our interview with Glenn Triggs. We know you enjoyed it. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn, for coming and joining us again. We really do appreciate it. I can't wait for audiences to get to see this movie. I love it. I love all of your work, Glenn. Thank you for joining us. We really look forward to following your career and hopefully seeing more great hits like this in the future.
2: Seriously, I know even though we got into some light spoilers in this, I don't think it would ruin the experience of watching this movie in any way whatsoever. This movie is really breathtaking. Glenn has really perfected his craft in this. So if you get the chance to go see it, if you're in Australia, if you can go see it at the theater, if you're in America, you know we'll keep you posted on when you're going to be able to see that on VOD or if it's in the theater at some point. Really, really loved this movie love glenn thank you glenn for taking the time to come on and talk with us and giving us just one of our absolute best interviews that we've ever done and thank you the audience for listening absolutely go check out not just dreams of paper and ink but the rest of glenn's work as well
1: that is the end of the show again thank you to glenn and thank you to our listeners for sticking around to the end we appreciate you Thank you for listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever it is you listen. Don't forget to subscribe. You can find us by searching the letters G, D, T, anywhere you listen to podcasts. But you know that if you're listening right now. And please leave a five-star review while you're there. We really do appreciate those. They keep us going and they help us out. So leave a five-star review and we'll shout you out on a future episode. This week we have a five-star review from Colin Is Ballin 35736 Boys, absolute fire content. The podcasts have been so good. Been listening through the Book of Boba Fett miniseries the past few days. Love all the in-depth lore talk. It provides a lot of background to some casual fans who may not know the story from the animated series. Been listening to the rest of the episodes as well. So good. Appreciate the content. Much love, fellas. From Colin P. Thank you, Colin P. We appreciate the love. And if you want to be featured on an episode, leave a five-star review. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Good Data Pod, and send us a DM and let us know what you think of the show. We're also available on Facebook at GDTPodcast, and you can follow along and always know when we're coming out with an episode. Remember, we have full episodes every Friday and bonus episodes every Wednesday. This was this week's full episode where we interviewed Glenn about Dreams of Paper and Ink. On this week's bonus episode, we discussed the new horror movie in theaters now called X. So if you missed that, go see X in theaters and listen to our bonus episode. Next week, we have a bonus episode again releasing on Wednesday, which will be an Oscars recap because the Oscars are this Sunday. So watch the Oscars, find out who won, and then come listen to what we think about it. Again, that will be releasing next Wednesday. And if you're looking for more content, check out our backlog. But in the meantime, stay tuned for more episodes. We'll talk to you then.
2: As always, thank you for tuning in, folks. We look forward to hearing from you on future episodes, and we love you. Have a good one.